Listen, uh, your pastors are great. Jody's one of the most loving uh, and gentle and kind and fierce ladies I've ever had the privilege to know and to work with. And Jeff is a bully on the Foursquare game. Nah, you have great, pa- so not only do you live in a great place, but you have great people who are, who are loving you and, and with you, and uh, everything that Jeff said, he and Jody have come right back at me, informed me, and challenged and pushed me, and so it's good to be here with them, and it's good to meet you and make your acquaintance. Um, there's a lot going on in the world, we've already kind of addressed that today, we'll continue to address that, so we... we probably walked into this uh, beautiful sanctuary with some heaviness and some, some right heaviness, some proper, some fitting heaviness, um, because I feel, and I, well, I know, we're being called to action at this time in this place, uh, a peaceful action, but action nonetheless. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to just go ahead and to read the passage for uh, today that we'll be dealing with. I'm actually going to read a little more than what we will be addressing this morning, but this is kind of the thought unit, and I I feel like uh, we need to read it all. And then uh, I'm going to pray a prayer, uh, invite you to pray that prayer with me uh, in in agreement, and it's a prayer uh, written by uh, a guy that I just dig the heck out of named Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, and it's called Our Right Names. So let me read this passage, if I can, and then pray this prayer. So we're in Matthew chapter 7. Uh, We're dealing with verses 1 through 12 out of the NIV. And uh, this is that famous kind of judging others passage. So do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure, measure you will use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 6 says, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. In verses 7 through 12, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread... We'll give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. You, God, toward whom we pray and about whom we sing and from whom we claim our very life. In your presence, in our seasons of ache and yearning and honesty, we know our right names. 
In your presence, we know ourselves to be aliens and strangers. We gasp in recognition taken by surprise at this disclosure because we had nearly settled in and taken up residence in the wrong place. For all of that, we turn out to be. We strangers, unfamiliar with your covenant, remote from your people, at odds too much with sisters and brothers. We aliens, with no hope, without promise, with very little sense of belonging or knowing or risking or trusting. It is in your presence that we come face to face with our beset, beleaguered existence in this world. But you are the one who by your odd power calls us by new names that we can receive only from you and relish only in your company. You now call us citizens with all the rights, privileges, and responsibilities pertaining to life in your commonwealth. You call us now saints, not because we are good or gentle or perfect, but because you have spotted us and marked us and claimed us for yourself and for your purposes. You call us members, and we dare imagine that we belong and may finally come home. So with daring and freedom, we move from our old names known too well to the new names that you speak over us. And in the very utterance, we are transformed. In the moment of utterance and transformation, we look past ourselves and past our sisters and brothers here present. And we notice so many other siblings, broken, estranged, Consumed in rage and shame and loneliness, much born of wretched economics. We bid powerfully that you name afresh all your creatures this day, even as you name us afresh. We pray for nothing more and nothing less than your name for us all, utterly new, restored heaven and earth. And we will take our new names with us when we leave this place treasuring them all day long, citizens, saints, members, even as we take with us the odd name of Jesus. Amen. This passage that we just read in John chapter 7 comes at the tail end of a passage that is commonly referred to in uh, Matthew as the Sermon on the Mount. Others have referred to this passage not as the Sermon on the Mount, but the Kingdom Manifesto. And I, I kind of vibe with that. that. That speaks to me a little more strongly. And in this Kingdom Manifesto, Jesus, as you guys have been kind of following, uh, has sat and he has declared that uh, the world is now different forever, both in the now and in the here to come. He declares that the kingdom, or for some of you who don't like that kind of nomenclature, the kingdom, perhaps, or family of God, is inaugurated in his life and ministry. That Jesus is the model, that Jesus is the incarnation of God, that Jesus himself is the clear representation of what it means to be the ambassador and to live into this kingdom that is now among us. He declares that the kingdom is 
for whosoever. In fact, in that famous preamble that we refer to as the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of God. In other words, you don't do anything to earn the kingdom of heaven. You recognize it and you live into it. We know this because he sets all these blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed are you. And we tend to often think that those are things that we have to strive for and fight for and control and manipulate. And by checking off all these boxes, we'll have the kingdom of heaven. But when he gets towards the end of that preamble, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. In other words, this is not something you earn, folks. If you had to earn it, you never would. So therefore, recognize that at your lowest, most wretched state, the outcasts and the denigrations of society, that God in the form of Jesus is on your side. And that is the good news, that God is for us. Now, that doesn't mean that with this high invitation, whosoever, that there is not a high challenge. Because as we move into what it means to be a citizen of this new kingdom or kingdom, we find that as we imitate Christ, it costs everything. I, I like to say it this way. Jesus sucked at altar calls. <laughs> Oftentimes, the people were like, we want you to be king. And what did Jesus say? Okay, drink my blood, eat my flesh. What? Or, or the rich man. Hey, Jesus, I've observed all of the law. I want to follow you. Okay, we'll give away all your money. Or, or my favorite. Hey, we want to follow you. Take up your cross and follow me. He wasn't speaking of jewelry there. He was talking about the fact that this will cost you everything. So with the whosoever invitation, there's also the high challenge. This is something that we have to live into in a deep way. And it will call us to be different than the world that we have known. He also declares that there's no need to live in fear or to be anxious anymore. Because not only is Jesus on our side, but Jesus has invited us, challenged us, to also subvert evil with him. That we are to be ambassadors of life. And life abundantly. Everlasting life. Sometimes when we talk about everlasting life. We talk about it in quantitative measures. In other words. Life everlasting. For all time. Just It's just going to go on and go on and go on. Eternal. But Dallas Willard, who I'm going to be referencing a lot in this because I'm a big fan of Dallas Willard. I'm going to drop names today of people I don't know personally, but authors, and you need to check them out because they're way smarter uh, than me, and, and uh, you need to read their books and all that stuff. Anyway, Dallas Willard says that when we talk about the everlasting life, it's not so much that it just goes on and on and on, but it's a life that is a life for the ages. In other words... Jesus is inviting us to live as he lived in such a way that years and years and generations and generations, people will speak of us and the way we lived our life because it was so qualitative, quality. I mean, do you want your grandkids 
to have your name on their lips at all times is an example of what it is to live abundantly. This is what Jesus is calling us into. This is why we've got to figure out how not to be about winning, but to be winsome. As the people of Christ, we've got to be salt and light. We've got we to make people thirsty for more of it. We've got we to be flavor to the world. Yo. So that's important. And we're invited into that. He states that to be a part of this kingdom, one does not have to toil and stress to keep a law. But instead, as Eugene Peterson says in his version of the Bible, the message that we are to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. That as kingdoms, just like as someone is adopted or welcomed into a family, it's not about keeping rules. It's just learning who we are. And how we do things. And how to be in the world. This is not an anxious thing where we have to worry about God striking us over the head. But instead, we learn to live like daddy lives. And in that, we have our freedom and trust. John might call this abiding in the vine. Paul would probably and, and has called it walking in the spirit. Dallas Willard again talks about as becoming the kind of people who are genuinely at home in God's world. So here in the concluding parts of this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is alerting us now to specific practices and underlying attitudes that are all so human, but are sure to isolate us from the goodness and the power flowing from This radical kingdom that is among us. Jesus has already called us those who would bear his name. Those who would be disciples. He's called us to lay aside anger and contempt. He's called us to stop the cultivation of lust. He's he's called us to avoid verbal manipulation or payback and getting even. And he's called us to cast aside the burden and resulting anxieties of having to look good or to find our security in wealth. These are all obstructions to resting in God and inhabiting the kingdom in a true and a non-perfunctory way. When we study this passage, as you guys have been looking at it, I got to believe that you've realized, you've gleaned that the ultimate goal of the kingdom of God is that agape love. That God love. The love that heals us relationally. Our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with this earth and all that inhabits it. And we see... That at the end of this passage, in Matthew 7, verse 12, when he says, Therefore, treat others as you would want them to treat yourself. This is popularly known as the golden rule. And is a major component of realizing this agape love and establishing the kingdom in our world. But if we're going to look at verse 12, where Jesus says to be a part of this kingdom... All of the laws of the prophets, all the law, the Torah, 
can be summed up in do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat others as you would have them treat you. Then we have to understand carefully what the therefore in that verse is there for. It's there to indicate that verse 12 makes the general point that the earlier verses illustrate. In kingdom life, we extend respect to others that we would naturally hope others would extend to us. That's how love behaves, and it still behaves that way when we come uh, to dealing with our intimate relationships. In these verses, 1 through 11, and we're going to look through 1 through 5, Agape love has been concretely illustrated in these three ways. The first, verses 1 through 5 that we're going to deal with today, is that love does not condemn or blame those around us. Verse 6, this weird deal about pearls and pigs and dogs and stuff is about not forcing wonderful things upon others. And then third, in verses 7 through 11, just ask for what we want from others and from God. In other words, avoid manipulation in our intimate relationships. So we've been invited to a kingdom, a wonderful kingdom, a kingdom that subverts and turns this world upside down. Jesus is the reason That we can do this. The Holy Spirit is the action by which we can be empowered to perform and live as citizens of this new kingdom. And the goal is to get to the place where we're abiding in love in such an unforced rhythm of grace. That it's not about doing things and checking spiritual boxes. But instead simply being like our dad. Our heavenly father. So what the heck does it mean (laughs) to not judge others? This is a crazy verse. Don't judge others because you'll be judged that same way. Now, I grew up basically thinking if you judged yourself hard enough, you could judge anybody. (laughs) Tit for tat. I'm harder on myself, worm theology, I'm wretched, there's nothing in me that's right at all, I'm depraved fully, all those things. And I bought into that with my whole heart. And, And there's a useful component to pieces of that, but at the same time, I have to understand that I, along with everyone in this room and everyone I will ever encounter is a child of God fashioned and formed in the likeness of God. And that the seed of eternity, as Ecclesiastes says, is planted in the human heart. Now, it may be jacked up. In fact, if we would all just admit that we're all jacked up and start from there, it might be a good place. But we're all marred, we're all broken, we're all fragile. We have all bought into the wrong names But that this journey into God, into Christ, into becoming our God-envisioned selves is the healing process that only happens when we begin to see one another and ourselves as God sees us. 
a beautiful Yahweh original. Priceless. So I want to ask some questions here. What does the term judging mean given the context of this passage? How do we avoid the trap of condemnation that arises from the labeling mechanism? And what are practical steps to becoming the namers that God has called us to be? First, we'll talk about this judgment word. Now, this type of judgment is not simple categorization or evaluative appraisal. There is something in us that is like our creator that we are able to name. In fact, the first task given to the Adam or humanity was to name. Bring all the animals and you name the animals. In other words, there's a piece in us that is built, hardwired into our brain, science would say, that we look at the qualities, the properties, the elements of what things are, and we associate them as good or safe or pleasing or uh, harmful or dangerous, all those things. We're, we're built that way. That's why when certain things happen that you've been conditioned to, to feel, something rises up in you and this adrenaline flows and this fight or flight simulation happens and those are... Those are pieces of us that are biological that the Holy Spirit has to trump. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. And it trumps it by us learning to name. But when we're talking about judging here, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about decision making. We're not talking about evaluation. What we're talking about here is a relational type of judgment. It's relational because it's followed right up. It's, 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 it's built into don't judge others, right? It's built into this part about, hey, you're judging this person. Why don't you do this, Liz, when, when you yourself have this big plank in your eye? You're looking at specks and splinters and trying to pull them out when you're the dude or you're the lady with the, the big blockage. And so when we look at this, what's actually happening here is that Jesus is talking more to this idea of condemnation. And condemnation is this obstruction to flowing in the unforced rhythms of grace, to being a citizen in the kingdom of heaven, because it is the exact opposite of what Jesus has just promised us. If I condemn you, I'm forgetting... That even though I've done everything to be condemned, that God is on my side. It's right there in the preamble, in the Beatitudes. God is on our side. That doesn't just mean that God is on the Grove side and is against the Baptist side. Or even worse, the sinners out there, whoever that might be. Someone once said... There's no such thing as saint and sinner. We're all sinners becoming saints. <laughs> and so this condemnation aspect is the urge to cut people off from a life-giving flow of grace that is available to all. Now, when I was a youth pastor, it uh, feels like 80 years ago, because teenagers will age you quickly. 
and I pray for you back there. Uh, although I'm sure your teens are lovely, and, and that's not a problem. Um, I used to tell them, you know, your worth and your value and the love and the grace that God has for you is not conditioned in any way by, uh, by your background. It's not. I don't care where you come from. I come from jacked up place myself. God loves you. God's not surprised by your family. Sometimes uh, when, when I started the process of courting my wife, uh, dating her and all that stuff, and we got serious, the, the, the dreaded part was introducing her to the folks and to the family. Not because we're necessarily bad people. I mean, we are, and we're weird. Uh, but her family was just so sweet. Ugh. Like, like uh, they never yelled at each other. I, I, I was in a van with her and her sister once as her parents were driving into town uh, to check out a church that they were being invited to pastor at. Her dad's a pastor. And uh, we're sitting there, and their names are Steve and Frida. We're in the back seat, and everything's going well. And... Uh, I think my mother-in-law, Frida, said, Steve, where are the receipts from the ATM? And uh, my father-in-law, Pop, said, "Um, I I don't know. And uh, my mother-in-law said, Steve. Uh, Okay. Except that my wife and her little sister were trembling. I said, what's what's wrong? Shh. Mom and dad are fighting. I was like, what? And I, I, I actually interrupted the argument by saying, are you kidding me right now? Nobody's dragging anyone across the floor. Nobody's like nailing planks on the door and throwing clothes out into the yard. I mean, that's my life. So I had to introduce her to my family. I'm like, ah, ugh. And uh, sometimes I think that that's how we feel about others and God. That we have people that we feel like we bring them before God and God's going to be surprised by our background. Like, Like God doesn't know you messed up in your teen years. Or that you, like anything that's going to surprise God when we bring them up to the church or ourselves. God doesn't know. God knows it all. And God loves us. Your background's never going to change God's love for you. Uh, Or even your behavior. It, It may hurt you. It may keep you from the flow of God. But that flows there. That's basically when, when, when we're sinning, we're saying to God, we don't want you. We're saying, you stay there. God's not surprised. God's not shocked. There's nothing we can do to keep God from loving us. Even our belief. That's a big one for the church. You got the wrong belief. Got to have the orthodoxy. That's what the church is about right now. We even call ourselves that, right? We're believers. Listen, let me tell you this. 
I teach theology and I teach spirituality. At the beginning of a class, I, tell people, I ask students why they're there. They say they want to grow in God. Uh, they love God. They're excited about God. Their life's dedicated upon God. They're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to get an education so that they can be trained for the ministry. And then we go through the Apostles' Creed and we spend 13, 14 weeks looking at different doctrinal issues like sin and like atonement and like uh, the Trinity. And at the end of the class, I always ask them this question. How many of you believe differently now, having read and studied and prayed about what you have, than what you believed at the beginning of this class? And every hand goes up, except for a few arrogant people who are 17 and know everything in the world. But most all of them are like, it's at that point why I say to them, aren't you glad that your healing, your salvation, your standing with God is not dependent upon whether you get the theology right or wrong? It's about your obedience and how you live in the world. It's about, are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven or not? Now, that doesn't mean thought's not important. That's what I do. (laughs) That's what I've studied. But the point is, is we got to have right desires and intentions. And as we do that, the theology will work itself out. Anyway, it's a pet peeve of mine. So, how do we avoid the trap of condemnation that results from labeling? Two things real quick here. I could talk about hours. I won't. I promise. We're not going to spend two hours. We're coming toward the conclusion here. All right? I'm, 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 I'm landing this mug. All right? <laughs> the primary choice for each of us is are we going to be a labeler? Or are we going to be a namer? Because when we condemn and cut people off from grace, what we're actually doing is we're labeling them. Let me illustrate it this way. I'll go back to the garden again. Adam's a namer. Kind of pick that up. Adam is naming the animals. God says, this isn't going to work. Or, or Adam says, I'm lonely. God says, okay. However you want to talk about what that looks like or whatever. The beautiful Eve arrived on the scene. Now, I'm corny. How many of you know what a palindrome is? Anybody? Word or phrase that goes forwards and backwards. What's what's the first palindrome in in the history of the world? It's not not Eve. It's Madam, I'm Adam. Uh, Like he had his swerve on real early, right? Swag. But here's the deal. Uh, Adam named Eve. Eve. God didn't name the woman. Adam saw it and said, Eve. All right. So we want to go that way. That's where it is. We go through that account and uh, the apple happens or the pomegranate or the fig or whatever. Spent way too much time on what that fruit was. I was, for a brief moment, I was a theological consultant for the Food Network. <laughs> True story, last year. And I spent thousands of pages on what that dang fruit was. Anyway, nobody knows. But that happens. Sin has happened, what is popularly known as the fall. The story goes that God comes. And he says, what's the dealio, yo, Adam? I'm pretty sure that's the Hebrew. Uh, 
And, and, and what does Adam say? It's the woman you gave me gave me the apple. Now, Adam's the one who named her Eve. But in brokenness and in sin, the first step that we often make is to move from naming, which is intimacy, which is authentic relationship, to labeling. I could make a very strong case if we sat down for a couple of hours and had coffee that every evil action that humanity has ever perpetrated has been a result of labeling rather than naming. I'm from Alabama. Liz mentioned the civil rights movement. Some of that was predicated and was centered and, and, and flowed around uh, a black church being bombed where a bunch, a bunch of little black babies, little black girls were blown up. I bet it would have been really hard for those men to blow up that church if they knew those little black girls' names. If they had crawled around in their lap or if they had been able to give them a piece of candy and talk to them at the store. I just don't think that's necessarily what would have happened. At least not as easily. Uh, concentration camps. Jews had lived in Germany for for super long time. All of a sudden, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so became that Jew. Which is what allowed people to turn their neighbors in. And to send them to camps for their slaughter. In our church today, there's a litany of it. It's Republicans and Democrats. i got to tell you, probably the most refreshing thing about this Wild Goose Festival that we were at was that we didn't have internet and I couldn't check Facebook. Or it's the Muslims. Or it's the progressives. Or it's the conservatives. Or it's the gays. Or it's this. Or it's that. Or in where I'm from, Alabama or Auburn. It's, it doesn't matter. It's when we label folk. Because labeling is naming without authentic intimacy. It's surface. So how do we avoid that trap? We avoid that trap. By choosing to not settle for surface. Let me give you some practical steps for us to walk out on. How do we name in times like these? The first thing that we do is we receive the fact, we recognize the fact, we, we live in the fact that God is God and we're not. And we, we, we recognize the fact that there is a connectivity between us all. That we're all in this together. All of us. Uh, we live, we die. As a people, as a country, as a community, as a church, as a family. By whether or not we're going to recognize that we need to treat one another as we would want to be treated by others. And that's what will heal us. And so to do that in humility, we lean in. In difficult times like our nation is, is having right now, we lean in by exhibiting kindness. Intentional kindness. Now, I'm a, I'm a big podcast fan and I'm a big fan of a, 
a podcast name uh, called On Being by Krista Tippett. Her whole stick, her whole piece, her whole point is to identify virtues and to cherish those virtues in society. And she says that pretty much all the virtues, uh, when we talk about them by name, they've, they've pretty much uh, become meaningless. What is love? You know, baby, don't hurt. Anyway, what, what does that mean today? It means so many things. People use it so many different ways or, or hope or it, all these virtues. She said they just really kind of, they need to be tightened up in their meaning. She says, but one virtue that cuts across that we can agree on is kindness. She says somehow it's maintained its, its edge, which is not something you would normally associate with the word kindness. You think soft and kittens, um, but To be kind to one another. And we're kind to one another in these times by listening. Lean in. It's it's, it's when we have fear and we have this impulse to other other people at this particular point in time. When things like what's been happening this week happen. We we tend to, to pull back. In your marriage something happens you tend to pull back. And it's a defensive posture. But what we have to learn is that we have nothing to really fear but fear itself. And if we're going to be agents of Christ, we go to the margins. We hold and we hug. I saw a t-shirt this week, hug harder. I like that. Hug harder. We've got to lean in. We've got to listen. And we've got to do it intentionally. Which means if there are people other than yourself and you don't know them, all you know is labels... Find someone who is a part of that group you're labeling and know their name and know their story and sit with them. I can affirm you without affirming everything you do or believe. But I can't just sit on Facebook and snipe. I can't just watch TV or buy into the deal that it's them who are wrecking this world. If they're wrecking the world, if they truly are the enemies of the church, if they're the enemies of our democracy, if they're the enemies of our community, then guess what? Nobody can get around this fact. Jesus says, love your enemies. And you can't do that if you don't know their names. So we have to lean in and we have to listen. We have to avoid that defensiveness. Listen, uh, kind of dance around it, but I look around this room and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is indicative of this community in some ways. It's very different. When, I, when, when I'm back home, there's a lot more hue in the room. <laughs> and where I'm at, I have to stop being defensive as a white man. Because I've held the power for so long. I didn't choose that power. I didn't choose to be born a dude or a man. I am. Societally, I've had the power. And I have dear friends, dear friends who are family. They're closer in many ways than my actually blood relatives of different colors and cultures that endure so much just simply for the shade of their skin. For me, I have to go home. I'm just telling you where I'm at right now. You do with it what you want to do with this part. But for me, the time of being an ally is not enough. As an ally, I'm for you. But at any time, I can shred that contract and that treaty. 
I have to move to being an accomplice. And what that means is I got to get skin in the game. I have to stand with my brother or sister close enough that the hurts and the things that are hurled at them affect me as well. And that's a sobering and difficult thing that has to happen, but to whom much has been given, much is required. I don't know what that looks like for you, but I do know this. When you have the opportunity to stand with the people Jesus would have stood with, you're living the gospel. Let's say it this way. If you want Jesus to be the center, then you have to be prepared to live in the margins. Because that's where Jesus is. So not only do I have to, in humility, recognize I'm not God. Not only do I have to exhibit kindness through uh, intentional listening and avoiding defense and moving from an ally to accomplice. I have to do this. And this, I want to say you have to do as well. You have to hold to. Immerse yourself with self-talk in the mirror if you need to in the morning. That we, me, you, we are hope actualized. That we are to be the hope in the world by being the citizens of this kingdom. By being those who learn the unforced rhythms of grace. By those who don't judge but who treat others as we would want to be treated Not only do I have to understand, you have to understand that we are actualized hope, but we have to just know and we have to hold to this fact that peace will prevail. That violence always begets violence. And there is a cost to being a peacemaker because a peacemaker is not just avoiding violence, but it's doing something To stop this retributive cycle. I don't know how to get around the fact that our God. Gave himself up on a cross. I don't understand how the very one who had all the right in the world to be wrathful. Took the wrath upon himself. Can't figure that out. Can't figure out how to get around it. Can't figure out how to get past Philippians 2. That Christ emptied himself. That even though he was God, he did not cling to the rights of God, but became one of us. Not only do I have to know at the core and shout it to myself and everyone I know that peace will prevail. I have to say and I have to believe and I have to build my life and my family's life on this idea that love will ultimately win. And that God's kingdom that has been inaugurated through Jesus and through the continuing presence of his church will one day result in the shalom or peace of God, the harmony of God being acted in a new heaven and a new earth. That's what it has to be. So I invite you to join this radical kingdom of God. I enjoy uh, the fact that God has called us to be agents of subversive peace and justice and mercy and love. I also know 
that it's hard to name others when many times we failed to name ourselves. And that for us to be able to exhibit grace and love and show that with others, it has to start right here with ourselves. So I want to just kind of conclude with, well, another poem. I like poem. I'm a poem junkie. This one's by Macrina Weidecker. Spelled with a W, so I'm imagining it's German. And Macrina is a weird name too, but anyway. It fits with naming. It fits with understanding who we are to be. Because once we figure out who we are in Jesus. And who Jesus is in us. Then we can go and be Jesus to other people. And help them to understand that. Is their reality as well. Uh, I tell you what. Can we just bodily respond to this in a different way? If you're comfortable. If you're able. If not that's fine. But can you stand? As I read this over us. Maybe close your eyes. Maybe not. It's not a mystical thing in any way. Or any, any otherworldly thing. It's just maybe so you can concentrate and hear it a little better. But this is called a magnificent for coming home. Almost creative one. Ever bringing me to new life. Almost powerful one, empowering me for life's journey. O indwelling one, calling me to my center. O beloved one, loving me as I am. Have you noticed that I'm coming home? I have seen you, the all-seeing one who sees me. I can remain away from home no longer. I just want to be there in you who are in me for I've heard your call make your home in me and I can stay away from home no longer my soul proclaims the wonder of your friendship my spirit is weeping within me for joy my heart spills out tears with delight and they mix with my joy and I tremble feeling totally claimed by your love You showed me that your home was within me, that living in me was your joy. I wept still more tears at the thought of you and me and I and you. A dwelling place I am, I kept saying, a home for the God of my life. My soul is turned into heaven. I'm little and great, all in one. Then from within me, your voice came, giving me a name that was new. Little great one, you called out. Come closer, little great one, beloved. Come home. Come home to see to the self I keep loving. Come home to the truth that you are, little great one. Come closer, little great one. You kept saying, come home. You came with your all to my nothing. With such reverence, you called out my name. You lifted me back into my poverty, the littleness I was trying to escape. Embracing that poverty, I felt wealthy. I was free at last to be great. Oh God, help us to see that it's your grace, it's your freedom that helps us to be who we are. It's nothing in ourselves. We 
need to stop the toil and the anxious of trying to please you. You love us more than we can even understand and that we can love ourselves. So help us instead to just learn the rhythms, to learn the unforced rhythms of your grace, to know what it is to sit in your home and to be citizens of your kingdom. And in doing that, Lord, we invite love, we invite hope, we invite truth to all those because as you have adopted us and welcomed us into your home, We are to be those who invite others into that same place. God, we live in troubling times. But we are actualized hope. We live in troubling times. But peace will prevail. We live in troubling times. But love most certainly will win. Help us to be agents of your kingdom. We love you. We thank you. for having me guys look forward to getting to hug some folks and share some coffee